I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah, out of your law. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. We give this teaching to you. I ask that you help me to be an open vessel, an open conduit for your spirit to speak and move through me, that the words that I may relay may be your words and not my own. And that, Father, you would give us all receptive hearts and minds of what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our lives. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. So the Torah portion for this week is called Kitesa, which means when you take. And the Torah portion this week is taken from Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, going all the way to chapter 34, verse 35. But as we have done all this year through the Torah portions, I'm using the New Testament the Renewed Covenant as a springboard for what we're going to be discussing in the Torah portion of Exodus for this week. So let's begin in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. And then after we read some passages in Revelation, we're going to be going to Exodus 31, just kind of a heads up. So if I, if I could title this message, it would be Balanced Faith and Accountable Faith. Balanced Faith and Accountable Faith. So in Revelation... Chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it says, To the angel of Messiah's community. Now, I immediately have a problem with that first verse. Because most of the translation says, To the angel of Thyatira, to the angel of blah, blah, blah. It bewilders me why uh, a letter would be addressed to an angel. An angel is a messenger. And an angel is a protector of people, of communities, so this word angel could also be translated messenger. So my personal opinion is that when these letters are written, they're not written to angels. They're written to the messengers of these churches, which means the pastor slash rabbi of these communities, of these churches, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. So we could say to the messenger of Messiah's community in Ephesus. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It makes more sense that John is re relaying God's words to a human being rather than to an angel. To the angel or to the messenger of Messiah's community in Ephesus write, Thus says the Holy One who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden menorot, or the candlesticks, as the King James says. I know all about your deeds and your toil and your patient endurance and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves emissaries or otherwise call themselves apostles and are not. Now, the word apostle is just a fancy term meaning somebody who is sent. Now, I know that there are the original apostles and they hold a special rank and a special place because they were directly taught by Messiah Yeshua himself. And there's not going to be any other like the original apostles. And Paul was considered an apostle, but a late bloomer. But... Sometimes I think that we overcomplicate words. So do I believe that there's apostles today? Yes, absolutely. Missionaries would be a perfect example of an apostle because apostle means somebody who is sent. 
So if somebody feels called to Africa or called to wherever, they're sent there by God. Therefore, they're an apostle. Okay, so uh, lost my place here. You have tested those who call themselves emissaries and or apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have forsaken your first love. That happens in marriages a lot. I mean, you're married so long that you become so familiar with your spouse that you become more like roommates than husband and wife, than lovers. You grow apart. And then you either get divorced or you just kind of live there as roommates, whatever. That's losing your first love. Remembering what attracted to you to that person in the first place. Remembering, you know, how giddy and madly head over heels in love you were with that individual when you first started out. And so just from personal experience, Pam and I were married six years, six years into our marriage. We kind of hit a rough spot. And uh, I remember waking up one day, rolling over and looking at this strange woman lying beside me. I'm like, who the heck is she? You know, it's like I didn't even know who she was. And in those six years, you know, I mean, we're, we're young and stupid, right? You, you think you get married and it's going to be happily ever after. And you fail to realize that when you get married, that you evolve, that you grow as a person and you've got to grow with each other as you change or you're going to end up being strangers. So we ended up going to marital counseling and we, we discovered that we had to date each other again. We had to start going on dates again. We started having to do the things that we did when we first met in order to recapture that love, that first love. So that's kind of the picture that we're getting here in Revelation 2. But I have this against you, that you have forsaken your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. That word repent means to do a 180. Turn around and go back the way you came. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your menorah, your candlestick, from its place, unless you repent. Now, just a side note, seven churches in Revelation, there were originally seven churches in Plasterock. And the Lord gave me a word several years ago, and it was identical to this, that if the churches don't repent, the churches are going to start getting shut down. Lo and behold, not too long after I said that, the one church on the hill, I think it was the Anglican church, disbanded, kind of merged with the uh, Episcopal church, and then that church was torn down. So that candlestick was literally removed. And I suspect within the next five, ten years, and I think I'm being generous, that there's probably going to be one or two more churches that are going to shut their doors because they're not growing. They're aging out. You know, the people that are there, they're dying off. All right, verse six. Yet you have this going for you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach, what the Spirit is saying to Messiah's community. To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And moving on to verse eight. To the messenger of Messiah's community in Smyrna write, thus saith the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich, as well as slander of those who say that they are Jewish and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison so that you may be tested, 
and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Ruach, the Spirit, is saying to Messiah's communities. The one who overcomes shall never be harmed by the second death. So I want to review verses 6 and 9 and, get, and jump right into the things. Verse 6 says, Yet you have this going for you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it's like we got to ask ourselves, who are the Nicolaitans and why did God hate them? Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich, as well as the slander of those who say they're Jewish and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So now we got to ask ourselves, what's the synagogue of Satan? So the Nicolaitans... The Nicolaitans are those who attempt to redeem pagan worship and somehow make it quote-unquote Christian. Now, a perfect example of this is look at Roman Catholicism. They modeled Roman Catholicism after um, a lot of the Roman pagan worship, Mithra worship specifically. So you had all these different deities that was the god of water and you know the god of the harvest and the god of this and god of that. Well, basically, all of these, in, in an attempt to supposedly win people over to the Lord, they basically patterned Roman Catholicism after Mithraism, and they also kind of threw in a healthy dose of, of you know, modeling things after the way the tabernacle was set up and worshipped, uh, or, or the religious activities of the tabernacle, kind of blended those two together, and it kind of formed this Roman Catholicism that we know today. So the pantheon of minor gods became the saints. Because there's a saint of sickness, and a saint of traveling, and a saint of this, and a saint of that. There is nowhere in scripture that tells us to pray to dead people. Right. It forbids us to pray to dead people. It was such a bad thing that the kings of Israel said, no necromancy, no talking to dead people, no talking to the spirits. You know, because the Bible says a sorcerer or a witch should be burnt or stoned. Right? It should be killed. Because they're communicate because when you try to attempt to communicate with a spiritual entity, you don't know what you're going to get. Because the demonic realm is liars. Because what Paul said, and I think it's one of the Corinthian books, do not be surprised, but Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light. In other words, he could look like a good angel. And there's a documentary, I forget what it was called, but I watched it about a year ago, where this, this group of people started a Bible study. And they were like, well, let's let's study about angels. And then they're like, oh, well, you know how angels came and talked to the patriarchs and talked to the prophets and stuff. Well, why doesn't that happen today? Well, let's try to duplicate that. So they started trying to contact angels. And guess what? Angels contacted them, but it wasn't God's angels. And what ended up happening is a couple people in this Bible study ended up murdering somebody in the community because the angel said that they're unredeemable and they deserve to die. Now, that's not an angel of God, is it? No. But it appeared as an angel of light, didn't it? So we have the Nicolaitans who were attempting to uh, redeem pagan worship and somehow make it Christian, Christianize pagan worship. And so I gave the example of you know replacing the pantheon of gods with saints. Now we have the synagogue of Satan. Now you'll have foolish people that will say, oh, this is just an unbelieving Jewish synagogue. No, because... You know, Jewish people are God's chosen people. They just don't believe in Messiah yet because they haven't discovered the truth of the prophecies. Doesn't mean that they're evil or whatever. 
The synagogue of Satan are Jews who attempt to incorporate worldly ways into one's faith and practice. These might be called Hellenists. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to uh, make their religion jive with modern society. And do we not see that today in churches, where churches are taking on woke ideology, agreeing that gay is okay, and you know, doing all this stuff to look and, 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 and be as much like the world as possible, because they're thinking, if, if, if we look like the world, then we're going to attract the world, and we're going to save them. No, they're going to say, well, you're just like us. You just have Jesus, so I don't, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need him. They, if they don't see anything different in you, they're not going to be attracted to you. So that's what the synagogue of Satan is. It's Jews who are attempting to incorporate worldly ways into the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So on the one hand, you have the extreme of being totally separate and trying to follow and apply the scriptures in the strictest literal sense, no matter how harmful and absurd it is. And you have these people that are literalist and they don't realize that, guess what? There's analogies in scriptures. There's idioms in scriptures that are not to be taken literally. You know, you you got to read within context and understand the historical and cultural linguistic context of what the scripture is saying. There was an author, uh, A.J. Jacobs, I think. He has a very funny book called The Year of Living Biblically. And he basically tried to literally live out the Bible. And it was hilarious because he literally dressed like Moses and tried to do all this weird stuff for a whole year. And that's what happens when you try to take the Bible on literally. Yes, there's some literal things on it, but because it's literature, you've got obviously have some analogy in it. Now, if the scripture said, behold, it raineth cats and dogs, are you going to literally believe that cats and dogs are falling from the sky? No, because we know that that means it's raining really, really hard. That's just an idiom that we use in our Western vernacular. So the same thing applies scripturally. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum is those who try to assimilate as much as possible and still yet be a church or synagogue. They have too much of the world in it. And what, do the, what does the scripture say? Come out of Babylon, my people. Come out of her. Be, be separate. You can't, you, can't, uh, you can't straddle the fence. So you have those two extremes. So balance is the key. We've got to have a balance. We've got to learn how to be the first century congregation in a 21st century way. So 2 Timothy 3.5 says... Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, that's churches today, a lot of the worldly churches. They have a form of godliness, and they call it social justice. They call it wokeism. But it demonizes the power thereof. It's denying the essence of what Scripture is all about. Morality, right and wrong, holiness and ungodliness. So balance is key. Now, we know what a balance is. If you have you know, the, a scale... You know, where you weigh gold or weigh things, it's got the arm, which is the fulcrum, and you have two bowls or plates on either side. And if you put something of equal weight, it balances out. Or like if you get two people who weigh the same on a teeter-totter, you can, you can balance. And you don't have to go up and down on the seesaw. You can balance because you both weigh the same. Well, balance is key. And so that's what we're going to talk about in regards to this Torah portion of Kitissa. So go to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. So in our, in our life and in our faith, we've got to achieve balance. 
to where we're in the world, but not of the world, so to speak. To where we're not going one way and just trying to paganize things and make it okay, or go on the other side and be totally, you know, uber religious and look like nut jobs. So in Exodus chapter 31, page 88 in the uh, Tree of Life version, page 88. Okay. So, um, so in Exodus chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now all of a sudden, when we start going into names, people start falling asleep, saying, Oh, here's a boring list of names. Names mean something. And especially in Scripture, they mean something. I found when you go through genealogies, and if you string those names together and find out what they mean, a prophetic message emerges. So there's a reason why this guy is named Bezaliel. There's a reason that he is the son of Uri and the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And we're going to get into that. So verse 3, it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all kinds of craftsmanship. To make ingenious designs, to forge with gold, silver, and bronze, as well as cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to working in all manner of craftsmanship. Also, look, I myself has appointed him with Aholiab, son of um, Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. Within the hearts of those who are wise-hearted, I have placed skill, so that they may make everything that I have commanded you. Uh, the tent of meeting the Ark of the Testimony, the atonement cover that is to be on it, all the furnishings of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the menorah of pure gold with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the woven garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the Kohen, which is, means the priest, and the garments for his son ministering as Kohanim, as priests, the anointing oil and the incense of sweet spices for the holy place. They are to make them just as how I commanded you. So you got two major craftsmen that are working on this project, that are heading this project up of building the tabernacle, building all of its furnishings, as well as the garments for the priesthood. So you have Bezaliel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. We break that down. Bezaliel means in the shadow of God's protection. In the shadow of God's protection. Uri means fiery. Her means noble. And Judah means praise. So we're to, if we're to take this guy's name and his lineage and put it all together, it means God has given creativity guided by zeal of what is noble and used to give praise to God. That's who Bezaliel was. He's in the shadow of God's protection. In other words, he's, he's under the shadow of God's protection, and he's fiery, and because he's got this fiery zeal, he's ready to serve the Lord in a very creative way, and his focus is, is, is trying to accentuate what is noble and what is praiseworthy. Now, that's all well and good, but if you're an artist or you know an artist, artists can be weird. Artists can color outside the lines and get a little crazy. They need to know that there's boundaries, that creativity is great, but you have to have boundaries in order to rein in the creativity to make it mean something. Because if it's all over the place, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a mess. So then you get a Aholiab, son of Ashimach of the tribe of Dan. 
Now, Aholiab means father's tent. So father's tent kind of implies authority. You're under my roof, you're under my rules, right? That's kind of what the picture is of father's tent. Ahishamach means brother of support. So Ahishamach, brother of support, it means somebody that's going to come alongside somebody else and help them out and be a big brother to them. Now, a big brother, if he's a good big brother, he's going to show little brother the ropes. Show him how to protect himself and, you know, how to do things. Then you have Dan. He's from the tribe of Dan. Dan means judge. So Dan implies having discernment. So if we put all these together, God's, basically this guy, Aholiab, has God's given gift of administration to support and to facilitate while keeping things in proper boundaries. So Aholiab is kind of like Bezaliel's accountability partner, where Bezaliel says, hey, I have this great idea. Let's do this. Well, that's nice, but have you considered this? Oh, okay, yeah, I never thought of that. So you might want to rein it in here and do this. Okay, that's a great idea. So if anybody has ever watched the, um, the Jesus Revolution movie, it's a true story about the Jesus movement of the 70s. You had Lonnie Frisbee, who was the hippie turned Christian. So he was still a hippie, but he was a believer in Christ. He had all these great ideas. He knew the hippie culture well. He was very creative, but, it, but he needed Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith was the old pastor. He's the one who's been through ministry and knows the ropes. Lonnie Frisbee at one point was wanting to go off the rails and thinking, oh, you're trying to stifle my creativity and you're wanting to tell me what to do and stuff. He's like, no, I brought you into this ministry and I can easily take you out. He's trying to keep Lonnie accountable so his zeal and his creativity doesn't go outside the lines. And it's like, a, like the prayer that I was praying about a campfire. Campfire versus a forest fire. You have a campfire, it's great because, and what makes a campfire great is the stones that hem it in. Right. It keeps the fire in one place so you can use it for heat and use it to cook. But a forest fire has no boundaries and you end up burning an entire forest. So if Lonnie Frisbee didn't have the accountability of Chuck Smith, he could spiritually burn down a forest with his zeal, all well-meaning and well-intended, but with no guidance. It's like the difference between a buckshot and, you know, a 22 or whatever. You know, a buckshot, you can hit the broad side of a barn, right? It just goes everywhere. But you just get a, a bullet, it, it, you can hit a target. It's focused. It's pinpointed. So therefore, you can do the, the most amount of damage with a, with a, in a minimal amount of space. So our unique gifts, talents, and personalities, which ride along with our free will, gives us the ability to take a thing and customize it, make it our own. So um, this is our Bezaliel, if you will. So basically, God has a list of rules and expectations in his word that everybody is to follow. But those rules does not hamper us to the point where we can't be ourselves. He has given us enough elbow room and enough wiggle room to be our individual selves. So you can have somebody like Aaron Merchant, who's a biker for Christ. You can have somebody, you know, like a real conservative pastor that's really scholarly. You can have a crazy guy like Mike Chase, who's a comedian. You can have all these different personalities, but yet we all believe the same thing. We all live the same way because we have a set of standards that we go by, but yet God's allowing us to be creative. But at the same time, us being creative, we need accountability. We just can't be lone rangers. That's why God has given us a community. So the word of God and the Holy Spirit is like our Aholiab. 
that keeps our creativity and free will in check so as not to cross the line or go overboard. So it's kind of like how Mike Chase and I were such good friends because we're opposites and we balance each other out. When I want to be uber strict and anal retentive, he loosens me up and says, okay, you don't need to go that far. Loosen up a little bit. And when Mike Chase wants to be all loosey-goosey and all over the place, fly by the seat of your pants, I rein him back and say, whoa, 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 we've got to have a little order here. So we keep each other accountable and we work well together. And so that's when we have our creativity, it must be matched and met through the Holy Spirit and Scripture in order to regulate our creativity and that we don't go overboard. So this is why there's so many sects and denominations and various customs and traditions and rituals uh, within those sects and denominations. So it doesn't mean that one denomination is more right than the other or doing things more correct than the other. They just have a different way of doing things because they have different traditions and customs that they've come to the conclusion of through their interpretation of the scriptures. And the Lord leaves us enough wiggle room to do that. So when the word and the Holy Spirit is ignored, that's when our Aholabah is quenched. And remember I said Aholabah represents the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And if we quench the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the Aholabah, it means our Bezeliel, our creative side, takes full control and we just run all over the place and we make a mess of things. That's how cults are started. That's how false doctrines come about. And so to explain this a little bit better, I want to go to another Torah portion, to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, so Aaron originally had four sons. Aaron was the high priest. His four sons were the Levitical priests that assisted him. So they're all excited about God. They're all excited about being priests. They're all excited about worshiping the Lord and be, being priests and getting this tabernacle thing kicked off. And it says, now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own censer, put fire in it, laid incense over it, and offered unauthorized fire. Unauthorized also means foreign, strange, alien. So what does that mean? It means that the particular incense they used was not the kind of incense that God said to use. God already said, here's the incense that you're to use in my tabernacle. This is the only incense. It's only for the tabernacle. It's not to be used in your homes. The recipe is not to be duplicated for common use. It's not to be sold on the market. It's only for here. So, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe Nadab and Abihu says, well, we love God and we want to show God we love him in a very creative way. So maybe they come up with their own incense, or maybe they remembered a recipe from Egypt, and maybe that recipe was a pagan because it says alien, foreign, strange. Maybe it was an incense that was used in worship of Ra or another Egyptian deity. Who knows? But all we know is that it was unauthorized and strange fire. Second of all, they had no business offering the incense because the scripture says only Aaron was to do that. Only the high priest was to do that. So they were stepping outside of their, um, you know, their, uh, their station. And so they were crossing the line. Now, the rabbis say they were well-intended. They meant well. But it, it's, again, it's their bezeliel, their creativity that was coloring outside the lines. And they were ignoring their aholabah, ignoring the Holy Spirit and the word of God in their worship. 
and they paid for it with their life. So it says, so fire came out from the presence of Adonai and consumed them. Now, nobody can say that God is cruel and unfair. He gave them fair warning. He said, don't offer any other kind of incense but this kind. Nobody's to offer this incense except for your daddy, Aaron. They knew better. I mean, that, that's, that's just like knowing that, that electricity is going to, you're going to get shocked and electrocuted. Well, I don't care. I'm still going to put a fork in the light socket. I mean, that's just, you know better. And if you get shocked and electrocuted, you can't sue the electric company or the people who make the electrical outlet because you, you know better. Yeah, or the forks or the people. That, yeah, you can't sue the people that make the forks. So it says the fire came out from the presence of Adonai and consumed them. So they died before Adonai. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what Adonai spoke of, saying to those who are near me, I will show myself holy. Upon the faces of all the people, I will be glorified. Then Aaron kept silent. Then Moses called Mishael and Eliph. Eliphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come near and carry your relatives away from in front of the sanctuary from outside the camp. So it's interesting because it says they drew near and carried them out still in their tunics. So this fire from the Lord did not consume their clothes. It just consumed their bodies because it said they were able to carry them out in their tunics. Kind of interesting. So they drew near and carried them out, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to El, um, Eleazar and Itamar, that's his two remaining sons, don't uncover your head or tear your clothes. In other words, they weren't supposed to grieve the death of their brothers, so that you will not die. And he will not be angry with the entire congregation, but let your kinsmen and the whole house of Israel mourn over the burning that Adonai has kindled. So it says, let the people mourn on your behalf. You've got the anointing on your head. You're still in the office of a priest, and you've got to remember where you're at and what you're wearing and what you're doing. So it says, um, you must not go out from the entrance of the tent of meeting or you will die, for the anointing oil of Adonai is on you. So they acted according to the word of Moses. Verse 8. Adonai spoke to Aaron and saying, do not drink wine or fermented drink, neither, um, neither you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting so that you do not die. This is a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, why? That just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Why would God tell Moses to say that to Aaron? Because quite possibly Nadab and Abihu not only were trying to worship God in their own creative way, ignoring what God said about the incense, ignoring what God said about who was to offer the incense, most likely they were a little bit tipsy. Most likely they were a little bit drunk. Why else would this be in this passage right after that happened? Adonai spoke to Aaron saying, don't drink wine or fermented drink, neither you nor your sons, when you go into the tent of meeting, implying that that's what Nadab and Abihu did. Don't do that anymore. It's a no-no. Don't drink wine or fermented drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting so that you do not die. This is a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, why, why would this be? I mean, is there anything wrong with drinking? No, there's nothing wrong with drinking. It's a sin to get drunk. It's not a sin to drink. That's what the scripture says. You know, I mean, Jesus, he, he made fermented wine at the wedding feast. Fermented wine is throughout all the scripture. It's not a sin to drink, it's a sin to get drunk. 
That's the thing. And so for ministers, when you're ministering and on duty, don't be throwing back any drinks. Because if you do, what happens when you drink too much and you start becoming drunk? You lose your capacity to reason. You lose your willpower and inhibition, and therefore you do stupid things. That's why the saying, hey, hold my beer, because when somebody says hold my beer, you're about to do something dumb. Like you're going to get on the table and dance with a lampshade on your head, or you're going to get on a motorcycle and try to jump a ramp or something stupid like that. So you lose your inhibitions, and God says when you're ministering, you need to be sober because worshiping God and ministering to God is serious. It's nothing to be taken lightly. It's like would, would, would uh, the NB Power send a guy to work on a power line if he was drunk? No, no. no because he's going to get fried. He's going to like let down his guard and he's going to get fried working on the power line. Well, that's kind of the same thing. God is a live wire. And if you're not serious when you're, you're worshiping God or in that responsibility of being a priest and you do something that's not kosher, you're going to get zapped. Because that's what happened to Nadab and Abihu. So it talks about them not drinking. This is a statute forever throughout your generations. This is why he says, you are to make a distinction between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. When you're drunk, you don't make good decisions. You can't differentiate between right and wrong and good and bad because you're, you're inebriated. Your, your, your mental faculties are compromised. And so that's what he's saying here. You are to make a distinction. So you've got to be sober to do it between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. All right. So it's kind of like a, you got to walk the line. So that's kind of one of the tests. If you get pulled over and the officer suspects you're drunk, he'll make you walk a line. And the straighter you walk it, you're most likely going to get off, right? But if you don't walk that line straight, he's probably going to give you a breathalyzer test and haul you off to jail. So let's see. We're trying to achieve a perfect balance between the first century practice but attuned to the modern day, yet without compromise. So we know that the word of God never changes, and the word of God never gets old because the human spirit is a constant. We're all fallen from Adam till now, we're fallen. So scripture applies to us because it's no different from Adam till now. But times and, and, and things change. But God's morality, God's codes does not change. We just got to apply the ancient text to the modern day life in an acceptable 21st century way. So we don't have to dress up in robes and go out and look like freaks and, you know, be crazy and people, you know, we can dress normal, but yet we're still going to act different. We're still going to be different. And people are going to see that because they're going to see that you act and react differently because the Holy Spirit's in you and because you're following the word of God. But yet you look like everybody else because this is where you grew up. This is the, the, the age and time you live in. So you're going to wear jeans and T-shirts and, you know, stuff like that. So am I making sense there? Yes. Okay. We're, we're trying to achieve a perfect balance of first century practice attuned to the modern day without compromise. So if anybody knows me, you know that I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. You know I believe in the offices of apostle, pastor, teacher, evangelist. I believe in all that. I don't think that stuff's been done away with. But at the same time, I'm not going to go to the wacky end of the spectrum where some charismatic and Pentecostals go because they do things that are not orderly. They're doing things that do not line up with Scripture. And you got to be careful of that. So that's, you know, there's a lot of things that are suspect. Day late and a dollar short, brother. <laughs> So, uh, 
So, uh, you know, um, they're doing things that they're saying are from the Holy Spirit, but you don't see any evidence of it in the Word of God. Now, please understand me when I say this. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm saying some of the stuff that happens in Pentecostal and charismatic movements is learned. But, for instance, like, you know, the fallen backwards bit, where does it say that in the Word of God? I mean, if you read the Word of God carefully, when people who are not of God encounter God's presence, they're the ones who fall backwards. So falling backwards is an earmark of not being a believer. Falling backwards is an earmark of not being on God's side. But it says that if you encounter the presence of God and you're living their life, you're going to fall forward. You're going to fall face forward as a dead man. That's what happened with John. That's what happened with the prophets. That's what happened with Moses. But yet, in, in the charismatic and Pentecostal circles, everybody falls backwards. You wouldn't need those little modesty blankets for the women that are wearing the skirts when they fall backwards in the spirit if they were falling forward. That's, you know, that's a learned. I'm not saying that's evil. I'm just saying that's a, a learned activity because people, it's expected of them. And then when people are running around roaring like lions and mooing like cows and slithering on the ground like snakes and saying that's the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, that's the kundalini spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. We don't see evidence of that in the Word of God anywhere. You know, so those are the – and then you have ridiculous stuff like I heard a story of a guy that was – he was on the ground. And he was like, oh, whoa, and he's holding his stomach. Like, I'm giving birth to something in the Spirit. What? <laughs> Really, you're, you're, you're giving birth to something in the spirit or somebody walking around and bumping into people. What's wrong with you? I'm drunk in the spirit. No, you're not. The Holy Spirit wouldn't make you do something that is not recorded in the word of God or that's against the word of God. So we have to be very careful. See, when you do things like that, you're treading the same ground that Nadab and Abihu treaded when they offered incense and a strange fire before the Lord and they got zapped. We don't want to get zapped. Yes, God loves us. Yes, he's our father. Yes, we can come to him through Messiah Yeshua. But there's still protocol. Right. You just can't be loosey-goosey and just, you know, because even Paul says, let everything be done in decency and in order. So if somebody is speaking in tongues, there better be an interpreter for it or you're out of order. You're out of line. So that's the thing about the Bezeliel, the creative side of us, and the Aholabah, the Holy Spirit side of us. They need to work together and in conjunction to keep each other straight. You can't have one without the other. Because if we do, we're going to start believing things, interpreting things weird, going off the rails, and that helps keep us settled. All right, let's go ahead and close with a blessing and then the word of prayer. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. She is a tree of life to them that take hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. Yevarekecha Adonai Vishmareka, Ye'er Adonai Panavaleka Vechunecha. Yesa Adonai Panava Lecha Veyasem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. Amen.